Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ogletree Deacon's California Employment Law Podcast. My name is Charles Thompson. I'm a shareholder in the San Francisco office. Right now, I'm specializing in COVID-related advice, leaves of absence advice, and also preparing for trial. With me today, we're very lucky to have with us one of my favorite people in the firm and somebody who actually recruited me to the firm, and that is Doug farmer. Doug started our San Francisco office, and Doug, that was about, was that 12 years ago? Oh, it must be 12 going on 13 now, Charles, yes. That made me feel a lot older, uh, because I I think I was the third shareholder there. So anyway, Doug started, Doug started the, the office, the San Francisco office. He is, he specializes, or he works a lot in the in the class action context and private attorney general, attorney generals act context. And he knows that stuff backwards and forwards. He also has had a book out for a couple of years that is constantly updated called California Employment Law, which is used a lot by in-house counsel, human resources and, and business owners throughout the United States. Hey, Doug, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Charles. Hey, this is your first one, isn't it? <laughs> My first podcast, and happy to be doing it on meal and rest breaks. Okay, uh, well, you know, let's see, let's see how you're doing. Maybe you'll get invited back. All right. So, Doug, um, what we're going to talk about today, everyone, is a new California Supreme Court decision that is very important in the meal period context of uh, class actions. Doug, I think, if I remember correctly, that the case is called Donahue versus AMN. And do you mind just summarizing for everyone the main points of the holding? Uh, Sure. So this is a very significant California Supreme Court case addressing meal break law in California. Uh, The case was decided on February 25th. So it's it's hot off the presses, uh, just a couple of days old. Uh, The case was a class action lawsuit against a staffing firm where the plaintiff, uh, an hourly recruiter, challenged the company's meal break policies on several grounds. Uh, The first challenge was uh, that the plaintiff alleged that the employer had unlawfully rounded meal breaks and that as part of its policy, it routinely rounded them, which caused the employees not to get legally compliant. Uh, meal breaks under California law. Now, as many of you know, uh, California requires three components to its its meal breaks that have to be made available or provided to the employee by the employer. Number one, the meal break has to be duty-free. Number two, the meal break has to be at least 30 minutes. And for the first meal break, the break has to start within the first five hours of work. Now, if the employee works more than 10 hours in a workday, the second meal break has to start within the first 10 hours of work, 
and there is that obligation to provide or make available that second meal break. What the employer was doing in this particular case that caught the attention of the Supreme Court uh, was that it was rounding meal break punch times in 10-minute increments. So, for example, if an employee clocked out for lunch at 11.02 a.m., 11.02 a.m. in the timekeeping system, and clocked back in at 11.25 a.m., the timekeeping system would have recorded or rounded the time to an 11 a.m. clock out time and an 11.30 clock back in time to show a compliant 30-minute meal break. Uh, this was so even though the actual meal break in the example we just talked about was only 23 minutes. So a very important fact in the case, which is a discrepancy between the rounded meal break, which in the timekeeping system was rounded to a full 30 minutes versus an actual meal break in the example we just gave of 23 minutes. Now, under California law, uh, for a long time, California has approved of rounding in the context of computing pay for hours worked. But in this particular case, when applied to meal breaks, it was challenged. Second thing that was challenged by the plaintiffs in the case was the negative impact of this rounding policy on an auto premium pay policy. So the company had a practice where in its timekeeping system, if anybody recorded a short, late, or missing meal break, uh, the system automatically paid that person uh, the wage premium of one hour. What the employees were claiming in this case was that the rounding policy, in effect, created false compliance in the timekeeping system. So in the example we just gave, by, by recording a 30-minute meal break instead of 23-minute actual break, the uh, system was not uh, kicking out wage premiums uh, to the employees as uh, you would in an actual uh, short, later missing uh, meal break uh, violation. And then, of course, the third thing that the employees challenged uh, was the use of attestation. So in this particular case, and this is important for employers, the uh, timekeeping system had a drop-down box. And that drop-down box was presented to the employee anytime they recorded a short, late, or no meal break in the system. Uh, the employer wanted to use those attestations to demonstrate that it had made available uh, meal breaks compliant with California law. Uh, California Supreme Court examined that issue as well. So what were the holdings in the California Supreme Court's decision? Uh, first of all, they held that in the meal break context, uh, rounding or the use of rounding practices is unlawful, uh, both under California Labor Code Section 512, which is the meal break statute under our labor code, and also the wage orders. Uh, number two, the court held that timekeeping records that show non-compliant meal periods, meaning if time records show a short, late, or missing meal break, that creates a rebuttable legal presumption of a meal break violation. Very important. The third holding was that to the extent that employers are using attestation forms, Forget about using those in the context of rounding because they're never going to be accurate. 
But to the extent you can eliminate rounding from the timekeeping system, attestations are a perfectly permissible way of rebutting time records that show short, late, or missing meal breaks. So this is the Supreme Court, in a sense, blessing properly drafted attestation forms. That's a bit of a big deal. Uh, we're going to talk about those uh, in a few minutes. But that's essentially the, the holding of the case. Okay. So, Doug, you just gave us three different holdings. I want to unpack what you told us. I want to talk just a little bit or ask you a question about each of the holdings to make sure that to make sure at least that I understand. All right. So let's go back to the to to the to the rounding part. So as I understand what you just said, the California Supreme Court said no rounding or rounding is a bad idea when for meal periods. And, and, and explain to us what's the practical significance? What what are the practical things an employer should take away from that part of the case? Yeah, that's a, a, a good question, Charles. And and one of the, the concerns I think all of us had as soon as this decision came down uh, with the court uh, essentially making illegal the, prounding, the, the practice of rounding in the meal break context is that for a long time, California has uh, allowed rounding practices to take place for purposes of computing wages that are owed to an employee. Uh, California has essentially followed federal regulations, uh, which take the position that as long as rounding is both fair in form, uh, meaning on its face, and fair in effect, that we can use rounding in California in order to uh, compute employee compensation or pay for a work debt. And so, uh, and by the way, uh, neutral and form just simply means you, uh, if you have a rounding policy, you cannot round in one direction. In other words, you can't round in a way that's disfavorable to the employee only. So if the employee comes in early, you're not permitted to just round uh, to the shift start time. But if the employee comes in late, uh, you exclude rounding for the benefit of the employee back to the shift start time. You've got to do both of those for the rounding practice to be fair on its face. And then, of course, it also has to be fair in effect, which is that the rounding uh, over time has to neither significantly disadvantage the employee in terms of compensation or advantage the employee. So as long as it averages out over time, you know, you're probably going to do fine. The problem is that because we have long approved of rounding in California, uh, many employers have utilized rounding, you know, not just for compensation purposes, but to determine whether uh, they have complied with California meal break requirements. And so embedded in a lot of employers' meal break practices right now is this concept of rounding, which the court has said is now you know illegal in the meal break context. So very important now, you know, if you've got a, a rounding practice, you know, check those rounding practices. Make sure they're not applicable to meal breaks because it's a, you know, it's a very significant aspect of the holding. By the way, in the context of of rounding and in addressing rounding, there is a lot of 
you know, for lack of a better term, very bad language for employers in terms of compliance with California meal break requirements. You will find in page after page of the decision, the Supreme Court saying that even minor infringements of meal period requirements trigger the premium pay obligation. What does that suggest? Uh, it suggests that, you know, you're now several minutes short of 30 minutes. Uh, you're now past the five-hour mark where the employee starts the meal, the initial meal break. Uh, that's going to be looked at as a as a violation in requiring a, a wage premium or a payment to the employee uh, under the California Labor Code. So, you know, what the court has done effectively is to, I think, probably tie this big piece of red meat to meal break requirements right now for the plaintiff's bar. Uh, and we're going to start to see a lot more litigation in this uh, area and certainly a lot more aggressive litigation in this area. All right. So let's go to the next part, the next part of the holding, the second holding, rather, about rebuttable presumption. So what is the, you know, the, the court said that, the, you know, there's a rebuttable presumption of liability for time records that show noncompliant meal periods. And so what, what is a practical, practically, what does that mean for employers? Yeah, well, practically, it, it means that a lot of the damage has already been done. So with the, with the holding, uh, which, uh, you know, as we know, uh, in the context of a Supreme Court decision, is simply clarifying existing law, it means that all of us as employers now uh, have four years of meal break time records in our timekeeping systems uh, that now may be out of compliance as a result of the new decision. Um, you know, for for lack of a better understanding of the case, there is a four-year statute of limitations on the uh, uh, wage premium uh, component uh, and the non-payment of wages. Theoretically, uh, plaintiff's counsel can now go back four years into your timekeeping systems uh, to to allege that rounding has improperly uh, taken place. By the way, for, for those of you who've not been through the class action litigation experience for meal breaks, uh, what, what normally happens very quickly in the case is that plaintiff's counsel will subpoena uh, or request in a document uh, request your timekeeping records going back four years for non-exempt or hourly employees. Uh, they will then bring in a statistician. Uh, they will then bring in, you know, an expert in that area uh, that will set up a screening program and screen for short, late, or missing meal breaks. And, you know, typically they'll come up with a certain, you know, percentage a violation of all meal breaks that don't meet the short later or or uh, or that meet the short later missing criteria. You know, just as a matter of course, it's not uncommon to find employers, uh, even the best, uh, even those with the best uh, meal break policies, to have upwards of 25% non-compliance. You know, this is just human nature. Where either employees either deliberately don't uh, clock out and back in for a meal break, or inadvertently don't do so or for whatever reason, or a few minutes past the five-hour uh, mark, uh, or come in at 29 minutes, clock back in uh, after 29 minutes, not the full 30 minutes. So, you know, there's a fairly high degree of, of noncompliance embedded in the timekeeping process to begin with. 
Uh, what this uh, holding does is to essentially say that all of those timekeeping uh, recordings, those entries of short, late, or missing meal breaks, uh, are now presumed to create a timekeeping, uh, I'm sorry, a meal break violation, and uh, unless it's rebutted by the employer. So, uh, you know, a, a very clear uh, legal presumption that you are violating California law just based on the way employees have rec recorded those meal breaks uh, over time. I think what all of this is going to mean uh, is that we really do have to get back to basics as employers. Uh, we're going to have to be doing two things. Number one, we're going to be need to taking uh, need to take basic steps uh, to show that and create a paper record that we quote provide compliant meal breaks. Uh, the court is still saying we don't have to ensure that those are taking place. We just simply have to make them available. And number two, if a non-compliant break is recorded by an employee, we've got to take steps uh, to, to be able to rebut that presumption of liability uh, in the event that uh, we are called to task in litigation. Remember, our only legal obligation is to provide or make available a duty-free 30-minute meal break that starts within the first five hours of work. If you make that available to the employee and they freely and voluntarily elect not to take it, uh, that does not create liability for you, the employer. And that's what the rebuttable presumption is all about. It is, uh, in effect, the employer being able to say, okay, I made available the duty-free 30-minute meal break, uh, the employee elected not to take it. It is not our fault. Uh, attestation forms, according to the court, are certainly one way of, of doing it. I think those of you who have been attentive to meal breaks, certainly those of you who've been sued in class actions, uh, know that there is a whole list of steps that employers typically take uh, to demonstrate that they have provided those meal breaks. We really need to begin dusting those off and also incorporating things like attestation forms, properly drafted and implemented that are gonna to, uh, to, to be able to rebut that legal presumption the court's now, uh, now created. Yeah, let me ask a question about the attestation forms. First of all, uh, some people who are listening may not be familiar with the term attestation forms and, and how we use it in the class action meal period context. So maybe you could tell Pete, maybe you could explain that a little. And second of all, regarding the attestation forms, what are the lessons for employers as to how they should maybe word those forms or, or whether they should use them at all? Yeah, very good, uh, very good questions. And, and really, for the first time, we've got the California Supreme Court blessing a properly drafted attestation form. Uh, the court is saying that in this particular case, the attestation form would work to rebut a uh, timekeeping entry by an employee that shows that a break was short, late, or, you know, was not present at all. What this employer did was to incorporate into its electronic timekeeping system a drop-down box. The drop-down box appeared for the employee any time the employer recorded a short, late, or, you know, no meal break. And the uh, drop-down box prompted the employee to answer one of the following questions. And the court lays out very precisely, you know, language that it found acceptable, except for the rounding piece, uh, where, you know, if the timekeeping system improperly rounded you, 
to 30 minutes. You never got an attestation form. That was the only defect here. But had that rounding been uh, omitted, uh, the attestation form, uh, the court seems to say, was perfectly permissible and would have rebutted the, the presumption. So what did the attestation form uh, request? Uh, number one, it first asked the employee or stated to the employee to check one of the following. Number one, uh, I was provided an opportunity to take a 30-minute meal break before the end of my fifth hour of work, but chose not to. Option two, I was provided an opportunity to take a 30-minute break before the end of my fifth hour of work, but I chose to take a shorter or later break. Or number three, I was not provided a compliant meal break. Basically, I was not given the opportunity to take a 30-minute break before the end of my fifth hour of work. Um, those were the options that the employee was given. Courts seem to say that those were fine as long as we're, you know, providing the drop-down box um, without regard to, to rounding. Now, does your attestation form have to be electronic and contemporaneous with the time entry as it was in this case? The court's not saying that it has to. Uh, court's not even saying you have to use an attestation form. But the idea is that if you're going to rebut the presumption that there is a meal break violation based on an employee's recording of a short later missing meal break, a contemporaneous response by the employee saying, okay, yeah, that's in the timekeeping system showing that it was late, but I elected to do it. Or the timekeeping system is showing that the break is less than 30 minutes, but you have the employee in the contemporaneous attestation saying, I elected to take less than 30 minutes. Uh, or the employee saying I wasn't provided the, the meal break at all compliant with California law. Those are all factors uh, that can be used to uh, either confirm the meal break was not provided in the case of the last option or in the case of the other two options checked uh, to say to the employer, e, uh, you've rebutted the presumption, no meal break premium uh, for you. Um, but it, it sounds to me like at least the court gave employers some guidance on what an attestation form should look like in order to rebut the presumption. Is that right? That's right. And so the, the characteristics, I think, are going to be, I mean, to the extent we're following the ruling and to the extent employers hope to replicate the ruling to establish compliance, I think you're going to want to make sure that in connection with your attestation procedure, several things are happening that the court flagged. Um, number one, the courts are saying that attestation forms are just one tool that the court, in this case, blessed uh, to rebut the presumption of an unlawful meal break in a timekeeping system. Um, the attestation and timekeeping systems are going to have to preclude rounding. They cannot incorporate rounding, and that needs to be removed to the extent you're doing it. Third, the court's telling employers that contemporaneous attestations are going to rebut the presumption created by the deficient recording of a meal break. Now, some employers using paper forms may decide to do attestations on a payroll, a pay period by pay period basis. 
Others may decide that they're going to do it monthly, you know, maybe others quarterly. I think where employees have attacked those attestation forms have been, you know, number one, they're not contemporaneous. And how the heck can you remember if you're an employee, you know, what you did on any particular day, unless there's a contemporaneous prompt that is asking you to, you know, to respond. Uh, the courts did not rule out the use of declarations under penalty of perjury if you're in litigation. So this has been a common approach for a long time in defending class action cases. You're presented with the plaintiff's counsel of, I don't know, 50% non-compliant meal breaks recorded by employees in your timekeeping system. What do you do? You go out and get a bunch of statements under penalty of perjury from those employees saying, uh, hey, it may show short later missing uh, breaks, but uh, my employer provided me with a compliant break. I just elected to take it short, not take it at all, uh, or take it late. That was my preference to accommodate my my personal um, preferences. So, you know, these are the common elements I think that the that the courts are are looking for, and I think what the Supreme Court has nicely laid out for you know for all of us. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. And thank you, by the way, for um, taking the time to to speak with everybody today and to record the podcast. You're definitely going to be invited back now. Um, also, it, it sounds to me like um, this new California Supreme Court case that uh, you class action lawyers on both sides, both uh, employees and employers, lawyers are Gonna uh, gonna be spending uh, a few years just trying to figure out what it all means and using it in litigation. Well, thank you very much, Charles. Appreciate it being here today. Yeah, thank you, and we look forward to um, everybody. We'll be putting out another podcast within the next, uh, probably within the next ten days. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.